This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This country is preparing for war. It is a circumstance worthy of philosophers' observation how suddenly a whole nation can change its sentiments with its politics. In truth, the insolence of the French has done its work. The terrible republic can hurt us little by sea, if we will but resist her. And I am sick, heartily sick, of the servile acquiescence with which we have so long received from her buffetings and indignities and returned her thanks. Writing in mid-June 1798, Henrietta Liston, the wife of the British minister to the U.S., highlighted just how detrimental the XYZ affair was to American sentiment towards the French, even among those who had previously supported the Francophile leaders of the Democratic Republicans. Meanwhile, John Quincy Adams, writing of the affair to William Vance Murray from his post in Berlin in early March, betrayed in his letter a simmering resentment towards France that lurked in the hearts of other Federalists at home. Ultimately, these two letters reflect the miscalculation of the pro-French faction on both sides of the Atlantic. And, instead of the peaceful resolution that had been hoped for, Talleyrand and the Directory government had provided the impetus for war. Before we get to that, though, let me welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. I'd like to take a moment to thank Courtney Fitzgerald and Ty Bannerman of the Anytown USA podcast for providing the intro quotes for this episode. If you haven't listened to Anytown USA yet, then you don't know what you're missing. Each episode, Courtney and Ty choose a place in the U.S. at random, research it, and share the facts and stories they've found about the locale. They got one county away from where I live a few episodes back, which was very exciting, and I learned a great deal from them about places that are just down the road from me. There will be a link on the Source Notes page for this episode as usual, or after you finish this episode, you can go to ty, that's T-Y, bannerman.podbean.com, or search for Anytown USA on your favorite podcatcher. It's a great way to learn more about hidden gems across the U.S., so be sure to check it out. As we've discussed numerous times on this podcast, communication across the Atlantic was very slow. Thus, when important diplomatic missions were sent from the U.S. to Europe, leaders in Philadelphia would be watching every ship coming into the harbor to see if it carried news, reports, or even rumors of any progress or failure of the missions that had been sent out. So too was the case for the commission that had been sent to Paris. As New Year's 1798 came and went, though, there was still no word about the negotiations. There was word, however, that the Habsburgs had capitulated to the French, and Adams recognized that the more nations the French were able to force into peace, the less willing the Directory would be to compromise with the U.S. Vice President Jefferson, on the other hand, felt that the longer that went by without news, the more likely it was that negotiations had been entered into, and that, barring any Federalist trickery, peace between the U.S. and France was soon at hand. Jefferson eagerly awaited the good news, as 1797 had not been a good year for him. His role as vice president left him in an unenviable position. Though the acknowledged leader of the Democratic-Republican faction, 
His position as VP meant that he could not be seen as acting in too partisan of a fashion. Further, the office carried few official duties. Though there had been a brief possibility that Adams might bring Jefferson more into the fold, the new vice president quickly found himself shut out of administration affairs. Like Adams before him, he presided over the Senate, but with the precedent that he could not intervene on debates, as that had gotten Adams in trouble in the early days of the first Congress. Thus, in order to preoccupy himself, Jefferson consulted with George Wythe on parliamentary procedure and began work on what would come to be the Senate Manual, which is still used to this day, 2018 as of this recording. However, as he began his official duties, he would unintentionally besmirch the honor of the first man of the nation. As noted in episode 1.35, it would be around the beginning of the special session of Congress in the spring of 1797 that Jefferson's letter to Philip Mazai, in which he dared to question George Washington himself, became public. Jefferson hemmed and hawed about how to respond, and ultimately, according to Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone, became in the public mind yet another critic of that beloved retired president. To make the situation worse for Jefferson, there was a lag in Democratic-Republican influence in Congress due to absenteeism. A number of Democratic-Republican congressmen simply didn't show up when their strength was needed. Either they'd arrive to the session late or have to leave early. And Albert Gallatin, the faction's rallying leader in Congress Hall, was unable to pull together enough votes to make a strong showing in opposing some key administration legislative pushes, including the strengthening of the Navy. Likewise, John Beckley, the clerk of the House who had been a rallying figure for Democratic-Republicans in Congress, had been ousted from his position by one vote in April 1797. Jefferson tried to exert some influence behind the scenes, but when he started out for Monticello in early July, he was in a much weakened position politically. 1798, though, might be more of his year, if peace could be concluded with France and war avoided. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. There certainly was no peace in Philadelphia at the beginning of 1798, however. The House took up the impeachment of William Blount, as discussed in episode 2.6. Though Blount had been expelled from the Senate without a trial, the House was considering formal impeachment charges in January 1798 when partisan disagreements reached a fever pitch between two of that body's members. Towards the end of the month, Roger Griswold, a Federalist from Connecticut, began insulting the military record of Matthew Lyon, a Democratic-Republican from Vermont. Lyon happened to overhear Griswold at one point and calmly stood, approached Griswold, and spit in his face. Though it is hard to imagine, given the rhetoric and declamations thrown around in modern-day political back and forth, there are rules about how House members are supposed to conduct with one another, and hawking a loogie at a fellow U.S. representative is not considered good form. Thus, debate in the House turned from blount and focused in on whether or not Lyon should be expelled from the body. For nearly two weeks, the debate raged. Despite the insult, it seemed that the tide was turning in Lyon's favor, possibly because they felt that the attack wasn't completely uncalled for since Griswold had, after all, been insulting Lyon within earshot. For Griswold, though, this was too much. He was a graduate of Yale, after all. His father had been governor of Connecticut. 
Lyon, meanwhile, was an immigrant from Ireland and was just some country bumpkin from the wilds of Vermont who hadn't even been in the house a year. Who did he think he was, anyway? Griswold decided that he would show him and approached Lyon's desk in the house and started attacking him with his cane. Now, just from the little we know of Lyon, do you think that he's going to take this line down? No, dear listener, Lyon proceeded to grab a pair of fire tongs, and the two went at it right there on the floor of the house. As described by Adam's biographer Paige Smith, quote, the two men grappled and rolled on the floor until they were separated. Lyon, red and raging, shouted that he wished nothing better than to be left alone with his adversary. As Jefferson wrote to Angelica Church, Hamilton's sister-in-law, quote, party animosities here have raised a wall of separation between those who differ in political sentiments. A wall was certainly forming in the heart of Jefferson's friend Abigail Adams. In early February, she wrote about, quote, the brutal conduct of that wild Irishman lion and bemoaned that, quote, yet will there not be found impartial men enough in the house to expel the wretch. Even shortly after Griswold's attack, Abigail was still referring to Lyon as, quote, the beast of Vermont. It was in the midst of all this partisan animosity that President Adams had to consider what should be the course of action should the news from France not be favorable. On January 24th, he sent a memorandum to his cabinet asking for their opinions on a few scenarios on the chance that the envoys were not received by the French government. Should all of the envoys return to the U.S. or all stay in Europe? Or should two of them come back and one remain in Holland? What should be recommended to Congress? An embargo? War? How should the U.S. approach Spain, Holland, and Portugal? It's clear from this note to his cabinet that Adams was trying to get his mind around what to do in the worst-case scenario of a complete breakdown of negotiations. By asking for his cabinet's opinions prior to word being received, he also seemed to be trying to feel them out and ensure that he would have their support should he need to invoke more extreme measures. While trying to keep a steady hand on the tiller, Adams was shaken by an invitation to a ball being thrown on February 22nd. Why was this invitation such a big deal? Well, it was to a ball being thrown by Philadelphian civic leaders to honor George Washington's birthday. That's right. Even though Washington was no longer president, people in the capital city intended to keep on celebrating his birthday just as they had the previous eight years. Moreover, I can't find any evidence that anything was done to mark Adams' birthday the previous October 30th, though you have to imagine that he at least had a couple of folks who wished him a happy birthday. All of this was yet another smack in the face reminding Adams that no matter how hard he had worked the previous year, he still wasn't George Washington and lingered in the shadow of his predecessor. Again, from Paige Smith, quote, Adams wrote tersely across the face of the invitation, declined, and fired off a curt note of refusal. Adams's refusal, however, set off a tumult, as people who had previously accepted their invitations had to decide whether or not to go. Jefferson was one in that number. As noted by Smith, quote, it would hardly do for the leader of the Republican Party to appear at the birthday of a man whose administration he had criticized so often, while the Federalist president expressed his disapproval of the affair by refusing to attend. One of the few people who commended Adams' decision was Benjamin Franklin Bosch, who felt that Adams was, quote, a Democratic hero by opposing this glorification of Washington. Adams did not have much time to think about such matters, though. Word continued to come in about violations of American neutrality, including the plundering and burning of a British vessel by a French privateer in the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina. 
If news didn't come from Europe soon, Adams would be hard-pressed to maintain a neutral stance. Finally, on the one-year anniversary of his inauguration, a packet of reports arrived at Secretary of State Timothy Pickering's office. Some of the letters were in code and would take time to translate, but Pickering brought some to Adams straight away so that they could start to piece the situation together. Adams decided to notify Congress the next morning that the dispatches had been received and were being decoded, but sent them one letter not in code, which indicated the lack of hope in a successful completion to the negotiations. As Federalists in Congress began agitating for war, Adams and his administration poured over the translated dispatches. Adams found reason to fault the conduct of two of his envoys, Pinckney and his own friend from Massachusetts, Gary. On one of the dispatches, he wrote a note that two of Talleyrand's informal agents, quote, ought to have been not attended to, nor any word said to them, till the envoys were received by the directory and someone selected with full powers to treat. Marshall, though, as reported in the dispatches, had expressed his opposition time and again to informal talks. And one has to wonder if Adams made a mental note of this admirable Marshall character for the future. Despite his distress at the situation, it seems that Adams worked to suppress his anger while examining all evidence before making his decision on how to proceed. Secretary of State Pickering, on the other hand, was ready for war. On March 6th, he wrote Stephen Higginson railing that France and its leaders in the directory government would settle for nothing less than, quote, universal domination of the sea as well as of the land with the property of all nations at their disposal to seize and keep what portion they please. In Pickering's estimation, quote, the villains think that the real Americans will hardly dare appeal to arms against their imaginary omnipotence or if they dare, that their friends here are numerous enough to prevent it. When Adams turned to his cabinet for advice on the next course of action, he found Pickering and Attorney General Charles Lee advocating for him to request that Congress declare war, while Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott and Secretary of War James McHenry felt that the new, growing U.S. naval force should be put into action in the Caribbean to protect American merchant ships from the French, a form of quote-unquote mitigated hostilities that would avoid a total war while allowing the U.S. more time to prepare its defenses should it come to the worst-case scenario. Ultimately, though, the decision was Adams's of how to proceed. Unbeknownst to him, however, there was an advisor behind the scenes trying to put his two cents in. Alexander Hamilton wrote to Pickering on the 17th, asserting that, quote, I wish to see a temperate but grave, solemn, and firm communication from the president to the two houses on the result of the advices from our commissioners. After outlining in some depth what the message should contain, Hamilton wrote that he felt it should, quote, conclude that leaving still the door to accommodation open and not proceeding to final rupture. He then listed seven measures that should be passed along to Federalists in Congress to implement, including arming merchant vessels, the completion of the naval frigates, enhanced powers for Adams, quote, to provide and equip 10 ships of the line, a sharp increase in the size of the army, the fortification of key ports, and, quote, the suspension of our treaties with France till a basis of connection shall be reestablished by treaty. One can only wonder what Adams would have thought about what Hamilton, quote-unquote, wished to see out of his message or response, but luckily for everyone, as far as we know, at this point, Adams remained unaware of this backdoor communication, and, though he had started work on drafting a message to request war, ultimately opted for the mitigated hostility strategy. 
Though Adams may have decided to avoid war for the time being, there was still the matter of Congress, to which he would have to attend. Thus, on March 19th, he sent another message to Congress, while informing them, quote, that I perceive no ground of expectation that the objects of their mission can be accomplished on terms compatible with the safety, the honor, or the essential interest of the nation. He did not ask for a declaration of war. Rather, he turned back to previous recommendations that he had made for national defense and reminded them that, quote, in all your proceedings, it will be important to manifest a zeal, vigor, and concert in defense of the national rights proportioned to the danger with which they are threatened. Besides containing little new information, there was also a key part missing in this message, namely the inclusion with it of the other dispatches from the envoys. Despite his attempts to temper his language, the Democratic Republicans immediately jumped on the message as a call for war. Jefferson wrote to Madison about, quote, the insane message from Adams and asserted that there was, quote, exaltation on the one side and a certainty of victory in terms of bringing the nation to war. McHenry biographer Karen Robbins notes that even, quote, Federalists were surprised and that, quote, both parties demanded to know the contents of the dispatches. Ralph Adams Brown goes further into this and explains that, quote, a few moderate Federalists joined the Republicans in these demands to see all of the dispatches. And as day after day went on, the clamor grew. What did the reports actually contain after all? Adams said they were bad, but who knew? The United States Recorder, a newspaper in Philadelphia, attacked the administration on the 27th and, quote, labeled the entire affair a dishonest trick aimed at helping the Federalists win the April elections. Was it just an election ploy? Who knew what was really in those dispatches anyway? On that same day, the Democratic Republicans in Congress held a caucus and produced, quote, three resolutions designed to embarrass the Federalists and prevent measures for an effective defense. First, they would attack the idea of war with France altogether. They would also question, quote, the legality of army merchantmen. And, just for good measure, the final resolution would jab at Great Britain. Finally, on the 30th, William Branch Giles of Virginia put a resolution before the House of Representatives demanding that Adams send the House, quote, all dispatches received from the envoys. The House subsequently passed an amended version of the Giles Resolution on April 2nd by a vote of 65 to 27. The amended version called for not only the reports from the envoys, but also their original instructions. Who knows? Maybe Adams instructed them to just go over and cause a pretext for war. Speculation was running wild at this moment, and Adams knew, given the situation and the fact that he may be leading the nation into war sooner rather than later, that he needed to quell the divisive rumors and try to bring the nation together. Thus, he decided to lay all the cards on the table. The day after the House resolution passed, he sent to both the House and the Senate the envoy's original instructions, as well as their dispatches, redacted only to conceal the names of Talleyrand's intermediaries. His only request in his brief message to them was, quote, that they, i.e. the documents, may be considered in confidence until the members of Congress are fully possessed of their contents and shall have had opportunity to deliberate on the consequences of their publication, after which time I submit them to your wisdom. He knew how inflammatory they would be and thus wanted Congress to carefully consider the consequences of releasing them to the public. As noted by Ralph Adams Brown, 
quote, perhaps no contemporary description of the confusion and dismay these documents caused in the Jeffersonian ranks is equal to the brief comment Abigail sent to her sister the very next day. The Jacobins in Senate and House were struck dumb and opened not their mouths. In the history of American politics, this remains to this day, at least in my mind, one of the biggest miscalculations. The Democratic Republicans from Jefferson on down had expected that there would be something incriminating, something damaging, anything to Adams or the envoys or the administration or the Federalists. Instead, the only incrimination was on the part of the French government. We'll talk more about the reaction of political leaders of the time in a future episode, as the measures passed in response would have long-term effects for the future of the nation and for Adams' legacy. Suffice it to say that when the Senate voted to release the documents to be published in the newspapers, as described by historian Ralph Adams Brown, quote, the tale of French duplicity and intrigue, the insults to the American commissioners and to the nation, spread from state to state and city to city. Almost overnight, the temper of the nation changed. Some Republican representatives left Congress and returned to their homes. Some members of Congress who had been undecided as to their political loyalty now joined the Federalists. The general public endorsed President Adams and drank toast to Pinckney and Marshall. There were already rumors that Gary had been less firm than his colleagues. As the tide turned on one side of the Atlantic, Let's shift back to Europe and pick up with the envoys to see what the Memorial of January had accomplished. Surprise, surprise, Talleyrand enlisted intermediaries to help him in his response, though it took a couple of weeks before he put his new plan into place. He decided to turn the tables a bit and initiate a little divide-and-conquer scheme. In addition to the Caron de Beaumarchais, who we discussed last episode, Talleyrand recruited Pierre Dupont de Nemours to help him in this latest volley. As you may recall, Beaumarchais was already familiar with Marshall through business dealings, so he took Marshall, while Dupont was an old friend of the Pinckney's. Talleyrand, meanwhile, would personally apply the pressure to his friend Elbridge Gary. Now, be ready with those grains of salt, but I have to wonder whether Talleyrand actually expected anything to come out of his intermediaries approaching the other two envoys, or if the true aim of all of this was just to get to Gary. Gary was, after all, much better acquainted with President Adams than the other two, and was known for having affinities towards the French. When they met in early February, Talleyrand proposed that he and the Directory government just deal exclusively with Gary and cut out the other two envoys. The two went on to have an in-depth discussion, and when he returned to their lodgings, Gary admitted to Marshall, quote, that Talleyrand had made some propositions to him that he could not discuss with either Marshall or Pinckney, and that he had to provide Talleyrand with an answer within the next couple of days, as it was a matter of whether there would be, quote, peace or war between the two republics. Now, as the envoy's pseudo-negotiations had gone on, the war between Britain and France continued. The negotiations at Lille had broken down in September 1797 in the aftermath of the coup of 18 Fructidor, and soon after, the British government was given a shot in the arm by the complete decimation of the Dutch fleet at the Battle of Camperdown on October 11. Part of the motivation for the conquest, or, I mean, liberation, of the Netherlands by the French Republic had been getting access to the Dutch fleet, which was better equipped and more well-renowned than the French fleet. However, the British Navy proved themselves more than up to the task when the two forces faced off at Camperdown, and this victory would buttress the British resolve to continue to prosecute the war against the French. 
Thus, with an end to the war growing ever further in sight, the Directory issued a decree on January 18th asserting that, rather than the flag being flown by a vessel on the high seas being the factor determining a vessel's neutrality, the French Navy would instead judge neutrality based on the cargo on board. Quote, Anything of English origin on board, goods, equipment, clothing, would subject the ship to seizure. In addition to being contrary to the international standard of neutrality, it's easy to see how this decree would lead to increased hostilities between the U.S. and France. How could one judge whether a ship's cargo was of English origin without actually boarding the vessel and examining the cargo? War was looming ever closer, and this fact played on the mind of Elbridge Gehring. On February 10th, he revealed to his colleagues that the Directory was demanding that the U.S. provide a loan to the French government and would likely throw them all out of the country if they didn't agree to it. At this point, the Directory was desperate for funds. French currency had swung sharply from inflation to deflation, and despite efforts to raise revenue, the Directory at the end of September 1797 had been forced to do what no French government in the turmoil of the nearly decade-long French Revolution had been forced to do. They declared bankruptcy. In the midst of this financial instability, the military still had high ambitions. Napoleon, after his victories in Italy and Austria, had been recalled to Paris to discuss another project, namely invading England. That, too, would take money, though, which brings us back to our envoys. Gary got the message that they were desperate and tried to convince his colleagues to agree to the loan. Marshall argued that the loan would violate American neutrality. And besides, hadn't they talked about all this a while back and agreed that it was off the table? Meanwhile, Pinckney was just done. As early as November 9th, Pinckney had written to a captain asking about whether he had space on his ship for passengers back to the U.S. Neither Pinckney nor Marshall was interested in discussing a loan. Marshall decided to go see Talleyrand himself to see what could be worked out, but he got nowhere. The three commissioners conferred again, but weren't able to come to a consensus except to meet with Talleyrand again, who it should be noted did agree to meet with all three commissioners once more instead of just going through Gary. As they were preparing for their meeting with the French foreign minister, Marshall and Pinckney confronted Gary on March 1st. They had gotten word that Talleyrand had approached Gary about the possibility of keeping him in Paris, but sending his colleagues home. Was it true? Gary came clean and said that yes, it was true. With that admission, the team was broken, and Talleyrand had the upper hand. March saw more back and forth between the commissioners and Talleyrand. The foreign minister shifted his position to emphasize the loan for the directory government as key to any agreement, and Gary and Marshall offered to go back to Philadelphia to get instructions on how to proceed. However, Talleyrand didn't want to lose Gary, so he worked through agents to try to convince Pinckney and Marshall to leave France voluntarily. Gary at one point vowed to leave if his colleagues were ordered out of France, but towards the end of the month told Marshall that he felt it important that he stay, if possible, to prevent the outbreak of war. As the month drew to a close, it was clear that there was to be no progress so long as they stayed, so Marshall and Pinckney started to make preparations. Due to the illness of his daughter Eliza, who was traveling with them, Pinckney requested permission for his family to travel to southern France until Eliza was well enough to make the journey across the Atlantic. Whatever the travel arrangements, Talleyrand was ready to be done with both of Gary's colleagues. As the month of March drew to a close, one of his agents went to warn the Americans that all three envoys would be asked to leave France if Marshall and Pinckney did not request their passports and make arrangements to depart. 
Marshall refused, asserting that Talleyrand would have to order them out. Back and forth, the shuttle diplomacy kept on for the next few weeks until finally on April 13th, Talleyrand sent over their passports and a written request that Marshall and Pinckney depart France immediately. Meanwhile, relations between the three envoys had broken down completely. They held their last meeting at the beginning of April, with Pinckney attacking Gary for his, quote, deceitfulness and for playing party politics, as well as, quote, concealing information from them. Gary tried to defend himself, asserting that he was only abiding by Talleyrand's request in their private meetings to keep some information from his other commissioners. Why was he meeting with Talleyrand alone, charged Pinckney, to which Gary reminded him that they had all agreed that he should start the informal dialogue with the foreign minister. He couldn't help that Talleyrand was shutting them out. Gary tried to leave things on a good note, assuring Pinckney of his respect for him, but Pinckney did not return any cordiality. Instead, he wrote to Rufus King, quote, that he had never met with a man of less candor and so much duplicity as Mr. Gary. The Pinckneys left Paris and spent the next few months in southern France. Then, after Eliza recovered, boarded a Prussian ship at Bordeaux on August 5th to return to the U.S. Marshall, meanwhile, boarded an American vessel, the Alexander Hamilton, bound for New York City on April 23rd. This left Gary alone in Paris, a situation that other American ministers in Europe expressed their concerns about. On April 13th, William Vans Murray wrote to John Quincy Adams about Gary, asserting that, quote, I know him so well as to say that of all men I know in America, he is perhaps the least qualified to play a part in Paris, either among the men or the women. He is too virtuous for the last, too little acquainted with the world and himself for the first and could do no possible good but in a relative character as one of the three envoys. We shall have to wait to see how Gary's solo mission goes, however, and what the reaction back home is to his decision to remain in Paris, as our time together is drawing to a close. I hope you'll join me next time when we examine other aspects of foreign policy during the early Adams administration before turning back to see the response in Philadelphia and around the nation to the XYZ affair. Special thanks again to Courtney and Ty for providing the intro quote for this episode. And be sure to check out Anytown USA. I've provided a link on the source notes page for this episode on the website, presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. If you'd like to reach me with any questions or comments, my email address is presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies on Twitter as Presidencies89, and on Instagram as Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Thank you so much for listening, and take care, dear friends. Until next time. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.